serving the Lord. But we're going to get into the Word together this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 2. As you find your way there, I want to take just a few minutes and remind us of how we've gotten to where we are this morning. So, just a reminder, the book of Deuteronomy is where Moses has led the people of Israel through some incredible journeys. They've come out of the land of Egypt and God set them free. They came to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments. They came to the promised land where God had said He would give them this land that they might be uh, the inhabitants and become a, a real nation with real land and, and their own turf. And they disobeyed God and so God punished them by sending that generation out into the desert, into the wilderness to wander around for 40 years that all the parents and all the grandparents and all the disobedient adults would die off and that their children would be the ones to get into the land. So now we are at the end of that journey and Moses has turned around to the children who are left and is reminding them of everything that God has done to get them to this point. He's reminding them of, of how we've gotten here, about how God has been faithful in the past and how because we know God's been faithful before, we can trust that God's going to be faithful again. And the book of Deuteronomy is uh, several of Moses' sermons that he turns around and kind of gives to these, these people before they really go in and, and cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land that God was going to give them. Last week, Pastor Dave did a great job of covering the first half of uh, chapter 2, and we saw the Israelites are journeying through lands that, that aren't theirs. They're finding their way to their land, but they saw they, they interacted with a couple of different people groups, and we're going to pick up with one other group. Uh, so our, our chunk that we're going to look at this morning uh, starts in verse 19 through the end of the chapter, but we're going to pick up and start in verse 16 today to give us the full picture. So Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 16. It says, So it came about when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people, that the Lord spoke to me, saying, Today you shall cross over Ar, the border of Moab. When you come opposite the, lands of the, the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. A people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. Just as he did for the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them, they dispossessed them and settled in their place, even to this day. And the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarim, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed them and lived in their place. So we saw last week, and, and we see it a little bit as we start this week, we see that God is in complete control over all of history. We get to watch God's interaction with the Israelites. We get to watch God leading His people through this journey, through the wilderness, and, and all of the things that have been happening. But God's in control of all of it. God's in control of what's going on with the Moabites and the, the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and all the other ites that we read about. God's in charge of all of it. And so as we see God leading His people through, we see some other people groups 
and we're reminded of some other promises that God has, has made before this point, up to this point. If we had time to go back and look in Genesis, we could go back and look at the story of Esau and Jacob. They were twin brothers. And Jacob and his family and his children and grandchildren became the people of Israel. But Esau, the brother, he had a family too. And God promised that he would have land and that his family would become a nation as well. And so as the people of Israel are are journeying through these other lands, they're reminded, I've made you a promise that you will possess a land, that you will become a people, that you will have this promised land that I've set out for you. But don't mess with Esau's family. I made Esau a promise as well, and that's his land. And if you go in and try to take it, it's not going to end well because God keeps his promises. So God's going to keep his promise to Esau, and God's going to keep his promise to Lot just in the same way that he kept it to the people of Israel. Lot uh, was Abraham's nephew. You may remember the story in Genesis 13. Abraham and Lot, they had a feud, and they had too many sheep and too many people, and, and they couldn't live together anymore. And so uh, Abraham said, Lot, whichever direction you want to go, you can have that land and, and God will give me the other land. And so Abraham and Lot, they said, Lot said, I'm going this way. And Abraham said, I'm going that way. And God promised to Lot the same thing that he promised to Abraham and his family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those guys were, were the same family. They're our, our people of Israel. And Lot's family became Ammonites. They became these other people groups, and God reminded them, I'm in control. I made Lot a promise that his family would continue to exist here, that his family would have land. Don't take that which isn't yours. If we've seen anything over the first five weeks in Deuteronomy, and we're going to continue to see it over and over and over again, I hope that you've taken away up to this point, when God makes a promise, God keeps His promises. And so when God made those promises, whether they're to our people that we're following along with, the people of Israel, or whether it was to other people that existed in that world, God's going to keep those promises. And we see this generation proved to be far more obedient than their parents. You remember that the parents had to wander around in the wilderness and die off. And this is now their children. Well, their children did a better job of doing exactly what God told them to do, when God told them to do it, and that obedience to to go peacefully through Lot's family's land, to go peacefully through Esau's family's land. That proved to be important for them because it was a pitfall. It was an opportunity for them to do what they thought was best. I'm sure they were puffed up with, all right, God's getting ready to give us our land. This is good land. We could take this land but it wasn't the land that God had for them. And so they learned not only that when God said to go, that they needed to go, but also that when God said, not for you, this isn't it, they needed to trust that as well. Ultimately, they realized what Paul talks about later on in the Bible in in the book of Acts chapter 17, where he says, "...the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands." Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. 
God determines who succeeds and who fails. God determines what people groups would exist and where their land would be and what their boundaries would be and their borders would be. God is ultimately in control of everything that happens in the world and there is nothing that happens that's outside of God's control. And we're going to see that more in a few minutes, but it's important for us to remember and to realize God's command to the, Edomite, the, the Israelites in their interaction with the Edomites or with the Moabites or with the Ammonites, all these different people, God told them to, to interact with the others the way that they did for a reason. It was because God was keeping His promises to those people. So let's keep going through our passage. Uh, we're going to look at and, and be introduced to our first contact with King Zion, uh, picking up in verse 24. So it says, Arise, set out, and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sion the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to, to Sion, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. You will sell me food for money so that I may eat, and give me water for money so that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Just as the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for me. Until I cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord our God is giving us. These people have been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years waiting for God to give them the land that they had been promised years and years and years before. 40 years they've been waiting and they finally hear the command. Go in, this is the land that I'm going to give you. It's, it's kind of like a, a satellite land. It's not totally the land, but this is land that, that they're going to conquer and, and the time of conquest has finally begun. And this first conquest that we see here in chapter 2, it follows the pattern of all the future conquests that we're going to see throughout the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua as the people are taking the promised land. First thing that we see God do is God tells the people where they're going to go and what they're going to possess. After that, He tells them, He gives them a promise that they will be victorious if they obey. And then finally, we see that God goes with them and fights on their behalf. All of those things are important because if they weren't in obedience to what God was telling them to do, we saw a few weeks ago, it didn't work out well for them, right? God told them, this is the promised land, and they decided to, to figure it out and do it their way and send spies in, and then they were fearful, and you know what? They weren't obedient when God told them to be obedient, and it cost them. God told them where to go. God told them that He was going to make them victorious. And, and God went with them. But ultimately, it was, it was an obedience to that command where God said, go and do this. And that they did it how He told them to do it. That they would be successful. So we see the Israelite approach here. It, to me, as we read through, He says early in the passage... In verse 24 or 25, he says, I'm going to give you this land. You're going to defeat King Sion. You're going to defeat the people and you're going to take the land. And then 
two verses later, we see, go in and offer them peace. What in the world? If they had, they had the element of surprise. They had, they had strategy on their side that they could go in and... Well, God didn't tell them to be strategic. God didn't tell them to surprise them and, and, and get a jump in the cover of darkness. He told them, I will make you victorious if you do what I tell you to do. And so what He commanded them to do was to go and to offer peacefully to King Sion. We've dealt peacefully with all of these other people groups that we've come through their land, and we want to offer you peace as well. We're, we're not looking to cause you harm. We're just trying to come through. And the king was... Uh, he chose to react poorly to that, but... Uh, God told the Israelites how to come in, how to enter, how to approach King Sion. And instead of doing what they thought was best in attacking in some other way, we saw them just trust what God told them to do. It was the difference between what their parents had done and what they did. The parents tried to think for themselves and do what they thought was best. And the children, this generation said, all right, God, that's what you want us to do. That's what we'll do. Even though it didn't seem to make a lot of sense, they said, all right, you've told us we're going to take this land, so let's go offer the king peace. But that's what they did. So let's look at King Sion's response in verses 30 through 35. But Sion, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sion and his land over to you. Begin to occupy, that you may possess his land. Then Sion with all his people came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz. The Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we defeated him with his sons and all his people. So we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivor. We took only the animals as our booty and the spoils of the cities which we had captured. So here in this six verses, we see a couple of different things that can be a, a pretty significant hurdle for people in 2019. They can be, we can read these stories and go, oh, that doesn't sound right. Oh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. How does that align with what else I know about the Bible and about God? And I want to start all this by saying, and reminding you, because I know you know this, God doesn't change. If God interacted with people or with situations in one way in Scripture and differently in another, it's not because God's a politician that's flip-flopping back and forth. God doesn't change His mind. God's character doesn't change. God is who God is. And we have to make sense of how all these things fit together as we try to look at this big picture of understanding God. But we see here, we see in verse 30 it says that God hardened King Sion's spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand. What do we do with that? What do we do with it saying God hardened his spirit but then God held him responsible. God held him accountable for those actions. I think it's important for us to note and important for us to realize that God did not change the king's heart, but he only confirmed the stubbornness and the rebellion that was already there. If we t- 
took time to look back in Exodus at the beginning of Moses' journey with these Israelites in Egypt, it says ten different times in the Exodus account that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it also says in those same passages ten times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So both of those things are clearly taught. Both of them show up ten different times in those passages. So what do we do with that? Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the answer is yes. And that's hard for us to understand or grasp or or, or get our minds around sometimes. But the reality is that Scripture is very clear that there's a tension here. That there's a tension that is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And this passage here in Deuteronomy experiences some of that same tension. The sovereignty of God is made clear all throughout Scripture. God is in control of the things that happen on earth. There is nothing that happens on earth that God goes, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't see that one coming. And there's nothing that happens where God has to go, all right, guys, let's, let's go with plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. God has a plan A, and everything that's in God's plan A happens exactly the way that God wants it to because God is sovereign and in control, and nothing happens outside of God's reach. The Bible is very clear on that. But the Bible is also very clear over on the other side of the coin that people are responsible for their actions. That when I go out and when I sin, it's not because, well, God made me do it. It's because I made me do it. And that I am held personally responsible for that sin when I stand before God. So how do we make sense of God's in control of all things and I'm responsible for the things that I do? Well, that's the question of of King Sion here. I think it's important for us, I want to point out a danger if we get too far in one direction that's called determinism. Determinism would say that everything that happens in the world is predetermined. And so it really doesn't matter what you think or what you do or how you decide you want to behave or not behave. or Just go do whatever you want because God's already going to going to do whatever. He's in control, so really we don't have a whole lot of say in what happens. We're just puppets that God's kind of pulling the strings and executing things that happen and everything is predetermined. Well, Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches that we're responsible for what we do and other people are responsible for what they do. Man is free and responsible for his actions But it's also important for us to acknowledge that those actions occur within the scope of history and that God is the God who's in control of everything that happens in history. So there's two truths that that we have to affirm both of these things in this verse that should be kept side by side without compromise or adjustment. The first one is that Sion was responsible for his own decision and his own actions to confront the Israelites. And the second is that God confirmed him in that decision And it can be said that God hardened his heart. It's not that God gave him a new desire, but it's that God hardened that desire that was already in Sion's heart. As I wrestled with this this week, uh, there's a guy that's a lot smarter than me uh, that had a good quote on it, so I just want to share that with you guys. Which came first, their decision to rebel or God hardening their heart? 
I do not think that the Bible gives us sufficient evidence to answer that question with confidence. I prefer to leave such questions unanswered without going into speculation that could lead us to deny some truth that is found in the Scriptures. There's a tension here. And that tension kind of leaves us in a place of wanting to figure it out and have all the answers. So, so we can step over here and say, God's in control. And if we get too far out here in, in that camp, well, then we, we run the risk of denying some things that Scripture says very clearly about man's responsibility. So maybe we want to come over here and say, well, I get to decide. I'm in control of my life. God's given me free will and God's not going to have any... Well, no, Scripture's very clear about the other side of it as well. So for us to find what really is true according to Scripture, we have to live in that tension between both of those things. The only way that I can make sense of this is to not make sense of it. And for me trying to think through that and understand that and, and, and put some teeth to it, everything in my mind comes back to my kids right now. So we're just going to make sense of it according to, to how things make sense for me with my kids. My wife is homeschooling my 7-year-old and my 5-year-old this year. And so every day they wake up and they study addition or multiplication or... Uh, reading or English or all the different things that they've got to learn. There's things that my second grader and my kindergartner are supposed to learn and supposed to understand right now. And so we teach them those things. But there's also things that my wife could try to teach them that they're not going to connect. If we put algebra in front of them, it doesn't matter how long they try, my five-year-old is not going to understand algebra. She's not physically capable of understanding the principles that something like that, that might make perfect sense to me or to my wife, they're not going to make sense to my five-year-old because she's a child. And because the things that I'm able to understand as a grown adult, she may not understand as a five-year-old. Well, if that's the case between two humans that are just a little bit different in age, how much more does it make sense that I don't get to understand everything that the God, the King, the, the, the Creator of the universe understands. There should be things that if God is who we say He is, that He understands that we don't. And it's okay for us to live in that space. It's okay for us to acknowledge that God's bigger than we are. And just like Sadie can't understand high school math, I don't get to understand everything that God understands. But you know what I do know? I trust that when He says it, when He took time to put it in His Word, that it's true. And even though I can't reconcile how God's in control and I have a responsibility and I'm in control sometimes too, how those two things fit together, we can't explain it, but we can trust and we can affirm and we can know it's true because God said it's true. So, I hope you're thoroughly confused with that. And with that... We're going to move on. If you really want to, to find a little better answers, come talk to me. I've got like really smart people that have written thousands of pages on that. So we'll get you to where you are okay with not understanding it. You won't understand it any better, but you'll be a thousand pages in. So you'll feel a little better about it. There's another aspect in these same verses that we have to take a couple of minutes to look at and try to wrap our minds around because it's another difficult hurdle for us in 2019 to, to deal with. Verse 34, it says, So we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. 
and we left no survivor. How can the good and loving God that we see who was willing to send His Son to die so that we wouldn't have to be punished? All of the loving and kind things, the grace that we see from God, how can that God command the Israelites to go in and utterly destroy all the men, all the women, all the children, wipe the cities off the face of the planet? How can that God be considered good and loving? What do we do with this entire people group being utterly destroyed? There's three factors that we have to consider in order to help us grasp this destruction of Sion and the Amorites. The first one is that to us they're just a name in a book, but these people, these nations were indescribably evil and deserve to be judged and punished for their sin. These people groups were idolatrous people that worshipped any and all gods that they could get their hands on. And in that idol worship, they had prostitutes and sexual immorality that was a part of their worship in the temples. They had uh, sacrifices that they would offer to these idols, that they were sacrificing babies and children in their worship of these false gods. These were evil, evil people that the Israelites came in and that they conquered. And it's important for us to realize that we understand that we deserve to be punished for our sin. If we have a good understanding of Scripture as a whole, it's very clear sin deserves to be punished. The sin of these people could go on no more. Through the hand of the Israelites, God was bringing judgment on the sinfulness of these wicked, evil people. The second thing that we have to remember is that they persisted in their rebellion and hatred of God. God is not opposed to offering forgiveness to evil and wicked people. All we have to do is turn to the book of Jonah to see that if a city defined and described as evil was willing to repent and to turn from their wickedness and to turn to God, God forgave and saved the city of Nineveh that He had promised was going to be destroyed in the book of Jonah. These people knew who God was. They lived in the land where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the the forefathers of Israel, these people had lived in this same area in the past. They were not unfamiliar with who God was. The God of the Israelites. The God who had, had worked so mightily on behalf of His people in the past. They weren't unfamiliar with God's work even more recently. Word has to have gotten to King Sion that God had saved His people from the hands of the Egyptians. A mighty army had chased these people to the Red Sea and God set them free from the captivity of the Egyptians. I don't know why King Sion thought he was going to be different. But these were God's people. News of who God was and His greatness, it reached King Sion before, but he in his pride had said, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to oppose this God. He can't stand in front of me. And that pride, that hardness that he had in his heart, it cost him. And ultimately, Romans 1 tells us that all men are without excuse. So we're going to look at Romans 1, 18 through 21. It's on the screens if you want to follow along. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1 shows us every man is without an excuse when we stand before God. Every man has the opportunity by just going outside and looking around at the creation around us. Creation itself testifies to the reality that God exists. That there is something greater than me and that there is something greater than you. And that whether they have come to a church and heard the preaching of God's Word or not, every man is responsible that when we stand outside and look up at the heavens and realize how small we are in comparison to the creation. Creation itself testifies to people. Creation itself testifies to me and to you and to people who live in a jungle that have never seen a Bible before. All people are without an excuse because the creation itself testifies to the fact that we have a great God who's worthy of our worship. So finally, the third thing that we have to remember that brought Sion to this point of destruction is the fact that these outside nations represented a moral cancer that could ruin God's holy people. God could not allow mercy and welcoming these people into the camp because God took the holiness of His people seriously. All of the laws, all of the ways that God had taught the Israelites to act and to behave, the, there's, there's several books that have led us to Deuteronomy where God has said, act this way. And this is the, the way that you're supposed to clean yourself. And this is the way that you're supposed to offer sacrifices. And this is the way that you're supposed to worship. They had all these things set up. And introducing an external evil people group into the camp would have jeopardized the holiness of God's people, would have jeopardized what God was planning to do through His people in the future. God took the influences that came into the camp seriously. God would not allow these evil, sinful, idolatrous people who practiced immorality in their worship of idols, who sacrificed children in their worship of idols, to come in and to have an influencing role in the life of His people. And because of that reality, I think there's an application for us today that we need to take just a moment and consider. Because if God took this people group, this evil influence, so seriously that He said you have to, to kill it and cut it off, that that cancer cannot come into our camp. The question that we have to ask today is, do we take sin seriously like they took sin seriously? Do we say, not a trace, the way that God told the Israelites to say, not a trace? Or do we allow little pet sins to sneak in? Are we okay with influences coming into our lives and into our minds and into our hearts and playing a role in who we are and our worship of of King Jesus? Am I okay with letting some things in? What are the things that I put before my eyes? 
the TV shows that I turn on and watch? What do they do to my affections? What do they do to your affections that you allow into your eyes? When you cut on that show, it might be really funny. It might be really interesting. But what does it do to your affections? If it stirs up your affections towards evil and towards sinfulness, is that something that God wants us putting into our our minds? I dare say that God, if He took sin seriously to the point where this people group could not enter into the Israelite camp, I think He wants us to take the same seriousness with the sin that we allow into our lives. It's great that you might love that band's music and the sound that it has, but if it stirs up affections for sin in your life, God wants us to cut it off. If that TV show stirs up affections for sinfulness in your heart, God wants us to cut it off. If that relationship that you have stirs up desires for sinfulness in your heart, God wants you to cut it off. It's this extreme response that seems really harsh to us that communicates how clearly God hates sin. And that should have no place in the life of someone who says they belong to Him. We don't get to say, God, I'll give you 95%, but I'm going to keep this little bit over here for myself. God, I'll, I'll give you most of it, but I really love this person, so it's okay that, that I disobey what you've told me is best because that's what I want. If God says it, and we trust that God is who He says He is, and we trust the promises of God and God's Word like the Israelites had come to this point of realizing and trusting and surrendering. And it's important for us to to do it in all aspects of our life, not just the parts that we come to church and talk about. What is it that God has in your life that He's putting a finger on right now, saying, you guys remember like Dave Rondeau a few weeks ago said, yeah, it's great that you'll give me that. It's great that you'll give me that. But God says, no, no, I want the one in your back pocket. What is it that you're holding on to in your back pocket that God's saying, kill it? It has no place in your life. God took the sinful influence seriously and would not allow it into the camp of the Israelites. But I question how seriously you and I take sin sometimes. Are we okay with going home and cutting on Netflix and and allowing the world to flood our eyes and flood our minds. Let's take it seriously because God takes it seriously. Finally, the last couple of verses of our passage. Verses 36 and 37. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead, there was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered all over to us. Only you did not go near to the land of land of the sons of Ammon, all along the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country and wherever the Lord our God had commanded us. We see a very clear key contrast between this children generation and the generation that had come before them, their parents. In Deuteronomy 1, 26-28, we see the parents' response to the Amorites, to this people group that the children faced says in verse 26, You were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. 
and you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to the heavens. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. The parents' response to this people group, to the Amorites, was fear. We know what God promised us, but they're really big. And their walls are really high. How can we defeat that? And so they ran away and they cowered and they hid in fear. The children said, there is no city too high for our God to help us conquer. There are no people too big for us to be victorious over because no people are bigger than our God. No walls are higher than our God's reach. And their faith was not in what they saw. It was not in what they thought. It was in what they knew about God. We deal with that sometimes, right? We look at situations in our life and we like to make excuses. We like to say, I know what God says about dealing honestly with people and being fair and not stealing and not cheating. And... But God didn't work in my industry. If I'm going to be successful in my industry, everyone lies a little bit. And everyone cheats and, and takes a little bit for themselves. And I can't be successful in, in my job if I don't cut a few corners. Is that what God said? Or did God say, obey what I've told you to and I'll take care of it? Do we trust like the parent generation who let what they saw with their eyes dictate how they obeyed? Or do we trust like the children generation that it didn't matter what they saw. It didn't matter how big the walls were or how big the people were because they said, our God has told us this and we believe it no matter what we think we see. We can't just make excuses for God wants me to be honest except for in this little area. God wants me to deal fairly with people except for if they're not fair first then I've got to stand up for myself. God has told us what He says is best. And if we trust His promises like the children of Israel did, God will work in that. I promise you. You may not get the promotion, but, but you'll be directly where God wants you to be. And God will come through for you because God keeps His promises, Right? We see it over and over and over again. God keeps His promises. So if God says that this way is best, who are we to say any different? Because God's going to keep those promises. And it can let us live in a confidence knowing God's in control and I don't have to be. That reality that, that we can live with peace and comfort no matter what our circumstances have, brings me to this story that I want to conclude our time with. There was a story of a guy named Polycarp who, he was the bishop in Smyrna, which was kind of over, it was in the second century, and he was one of the leaders of the church not long after Jesus and the disciples had walked the earth. And Polycarp was martyred in 155 AD. But this is a story of his response to people who would challenge his faith before he died. It says, He was brought to a stadium to be killed, but the officials did not want to kill him because he was an old man. 
The proconsul told him, have respect for your old age and other similar things. He said, swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp's memorable response was, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul pressed him again and said, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And Polycarp answered, since you are vainly urgent that as you say, you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am. Hear me declare this with boldness. I am a Christian. And if you, learn, if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. After more dialogue, the proconsul said, I have wild beasts at hand, and to these I will cast you unless you repent. But Polycarp answered, Call them, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good, in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. So again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire then, seeing that you despise the wild beasts if you will not repent. Polycarp responded, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you tarrying? Bring forth what you will. When Polycarp was bound to be burned, he looked up to heaven and prayed a memorable prayer, thanking God for the privilege of being a martyr. Polycarp stood and faced his accusers, stood and faced the people who had control over him living or dying. And Polycarp knew, it doesn't matter what you try to do to me, I'm going to trust that when God says He'll be faithful, that when God says He's in control, I'm going to trust that He's in control. Paul had the same responses in the New Testament. When the Roman government tried time and time and time again to shut him up, you know what he said? They said, you better stop preaching and telling people about Jesus or we're going to kill you. His response was, awesome, I'll go be with Jesus and go be in heaven. You can kill me, that's a good thing for me. They said, fine, we won't kill you. We'll put you in jail. Paul said, awesome. There's people in jail that need to know about this Jesus guy. That's fine. Let me go to jail. I got got people to talk to. He said, no, we're going to lock you in your house and have Roman guards keep watch over you so that you can't talk to the prisoners. You know what he responded? Sweet, I'll talk to the Roman guards then. I got guys I can talk to. Wherever God puts me, I have work to do. It didn't matter what his circumstances held. He was going to trust that God's way was best. And even in death, Paul showed no fear and Polycarp showed no fear because God is bigger and greater and stronger than anything that we face in life or in death. We get to live with that same confidence today if we trust that when God says do this, if we would do it, and we would trust God at His Word, and we would do what this book says, it changes things. Instead of living in fear of, what will someone say about me? Or, or what will happen at my job? Or what if, what if I fall behind? What if I can't find someone to marry because God said to only marry a certain type of person that shares my beliefs? What if we can live in that fear of what ifs? 
Or we can live in confidence trusting the promises of God and trusting that His way is best like the children of Israel did. The parents failed and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't trust God. They trusted what they saw. So our question today is not, what do you see? What do you perceive? What do you think will happen? The question is, will we trust God enough to do what He says in spite of what we see? Let's pray together. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the work that You did in the Israelites to show them that You would be faithful no matter what they saw in front of them. And we get to see time and time and time again throughout the rest of this book how faithfully You led Your people. God, help us to follow in the same way that the children learned they had to follow You. That no matter what walls they saw, no matter how big the people were, they were going to trust that Your promises are true and that You were going to come through on Your Word. God, help us to trust You and to take You at Your Word. That when You say that Your way is best, God, we open our hands and we trust You with whatever is going on in our life. We give it to You and we pray that whether we understand it or not, whether it makes sense to us or not, God, help us to just trust. As a child trusts that their parent is good and loving and and is going to take care of them, God, help us to trust, whether we understand or not, that Your way is best and that You're going to take care of us. We offer our lives to You. And we pray that You would help us to walk in faith in every step, in every day, in every decision. We love you.